And now we find ourselves in the book of Ezra. And after Ezra, we'll be transitioning right into Nehemiah, originally thought of as one book. Here we are, returned to the Claxton Community Center after our forced exile to the Jubilee Center. Kind of ironic, if you think about it. Here we are, though. Claxton Community Center, very thankful for the opportunity to use this facility and see God's house established here in the Clinton community. Let's look at the text for this morning from Ezra chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 5 through 11. I'll spend the majority of time on verse 5, and then we'll look at a list of things that were given to the people of God for the purpose of rebuilding from verses 6 to 11. I'll begin in verse 5. Remember now that these are the words of the Lord. Then, that is after the decree of Cyrus, then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the sight of in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazzar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400 all these did Sheshbazzar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. This is the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we ask again for your blessing on this time, apart from the work of your spirit, through the powerful sacrifice, atonement, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our time in the word will be unprofitable. But you promised us that he would guide us into all truth. And so we pray that that would happen this morning. Attend to this time as you always have. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, beloved, before I get into the text this week, I want to briefly explain a concept I mentioned in last week's sermon. Ezra records a kind of new exodus, if you'll allow me to use that phrase, of God's people. This is the idea of recapitulation or that God, who himself is a master storyteller, repeats themes that you've seen earlier on in the story. The branch of theological study devoted to tracing these themes is called biblical theology. You're probably familiar with systematic theology. That's a topical study of ideas that we see through the scriptures. It's a helpful branch of study. The idea of biblical theology is to trace the themes that we see through the history of the people of Israel into the New Testament times, particularly those redemption themes, that big story arc of how God rescues his people, tracing those themes through the entirety of scripture. I want to give you two passages to consider this morning in the idea of recapitulation or biblical theology. I'll read these as follows. And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. And again, I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. 
that each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and for gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Now, doesn't that sound like Ezra chapter 1? But of course it's not. It's from Exodus chapters 3 and also 35. What do we see? God stirring the hearts of his people and the Gentile nations giving gifts to aid in the building project. Ezra chapter 1 verses 5 through 11 records essentially the same events, this time to the returning exiles. It is, in essence, a new exodus. Let me say briefly, and this is still by way of introduction, that when we read passages like Ezra 1, verses 5 through 11, God intends for us as good Bible students to connect these themes, these dots, through Scripture and through the storyline. Reading the Bible this way will help you in several ways. First, it'll give you divinely inspired insight into what God was up to in the past and where he's headed into the future. It helps us to discern where there is continuity from the past and into the future, but also see that there are times where there is discontinuity between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. That's a topic that we will address multiple times throughout our study of Ezra and Nehemiah, both that continuity and that discontinuity. Most important of all, through this biblical theological lens, we see God's big plan hasn't changed one bit. God's big plan has not changed since the garden, who through Adam, though he failed, brought descendants to take dominion over the whole earth. And those descendants failed, the patriarchs, and their descendants failed, King Saul, King David, the northern kingdom Israel, the southern kingdom Judah. But even though and throughout all of this failure, God never wavered in his intention to see his kingdom established across the entire earth. That is still the plan today. God was so committed to this that his own son, Jesus Christ, entered the story. He accepted, Christ did, the dominion mandate. He did not fail, but rather succeeded perfectly, obeying the entire law of God without flaw. And by his substitutionary atoning death, he erased the judgment of all previous failures and all future ones. All of God's people, all of their sins have been erased. So, when we read the Bible this way, when we think of God's story this way, I ask you, church, how can God's plan fail now? How can it fail at this point? How can his plan to establish his kingdom here in Anderson or in Tennessee or in the United States or all across the world, how at this point can it possibly fail? We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In Christ, we can't help but win this fight. Now, it may take generations. It's going to take generations. But we cannot help but be more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, I won't say that a biblical theological lens is the only way to read your Bible, but we do need to think about the Bible as one story with several acts. Many of us were raised in a dispensationalist, uh, premillennial historical environment where we thought of the Bible getting chopped up a lot. And the dispensationalists aren't wrong about everything, but there's a little bit too much discontinuity in the way that they read the story. You can also make the opposite error and there'd be too much continuity from beginning to end without seeing some of the changes from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. But I want to continue today looking for strategies of returning and rebuilding. Remember, that's our great project here in Anderson County. It's a returning to God and a rebuilding process of the great Western Christian tradition 
here in the United States where God has placed us. Now, last week in the first four verses, we focused on one main character, that's Cyrus, the king of Persia, and his decree of return. This morning, I'm going to spend the bulk of our time in verse 5 looking at first who God stirred to return, and then secondly, how he motivated them, and conclude with verses 6 through 11 and what God gave them for the process of rebuilding. Let's look at verse 5, just that first part there. Then the heads of the father's households of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites arose. That is of everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go and rebuild the house of Yahweh, which is in Jerusalem. So verse 5 records who God prompted to return. You see there first, the heads of the father's houses. Now when you think of a biblical head of house, try to imagine an extended family that was united together under one man. We think of the word patriarch. You might think in our terms of a grandfather, perhaps a great-grandfather, these men were the first to stand up at the reading of Cyrus's decree, committing to return with their entire household, that would be an extended family, and return and rebuild. They led the charge, so to speak, encouraging their wives, children, and grandchildren, and so on, to follow them to Jerusalem. Now, Ezra also mentioned the house's of Judah and Benjamin, you know that geographically when the tribes were allotted their places, Judah and Benjamin were right next to each other. And after a period of history and war and all that, Benjamin and Judah kind of got seen as one big happy family, so to speak. They're often spoken of at this point in the scripture together. So that's why it's the heads of the father's houses of Judah and Benjamin. But the influence of these men, these husbands these fathers would have, it would be difficult to quantify the importance that they played in this role. And I want to comment briefly on this point. What we see here, first and foremost, is that the Bible is unashamedly patriarchal. The idea that a man over his household would lead his household to live for and obey God is standard process for a biblical family. Nowhere in the pages of Scripture are we given an alternative choice of who is the head of a wife and the children. From Adam to Noah to the patriarchs, from Moses through the judges and kings, and all the way through the New Testament, God expects that men will lead families, and yes, if you'll allow me, perhaps even groups of families. Now, brethren, how wonderful would it be to have men who are godly, wise, prudent, shrewd, who have gravitas, who act as a voice of leadership over an entire extended family. Some of you just bristled when I said that. I've talked to countless covenant members at Christ the King who have had or are currently going through real strife with extended family. Maybe some of y'all have a little PTSD when I say things like that, especially when we talk about grandparents. Hear this, fathers. Your family is your responsibility. God will hold the father alone personally accountable for how he cares for his little flock. But what if, what if, what if our parents weren't worldly and foolish? What if our dads, or even better, our granddads, were men of faith, were worshipers of Christ, and we as fathers could go to them for wisdom and leadership that helped us burst down every obstacle and every hurdle in our way? Think of the kind of influence that that father figure could have when our sons had questions about picking a mate? Or what about when our grandsons need advice when they want to learn a trade or how to shoot a firearm 
or how to hunt a deer. Not just a man, but this great figure, this man of faith, this man of God that they looked up to and said, I want to be like my grandfather. What if we had that? For most of us, the only chance that our family is going to have at that kind of generational patriarch, men is with us. For some of us, that's the only chance we've got. We are generation zeros, I've said in the past. That means that we have to get up off of our behinds and start working. The biggest threat to the kingdom of darkness at this point is a Christ-consumed, spirit-filled man or husband or father. Satan wants boys raised by their mothers. He wants to make them soft and incapable of leadership. He wants young men addicted to pornography so that their sexuality will be unfruitful and sterile. He wants men lazily sitting on the couch playing video games so their sense of mission gets fulfilled in a virtual fantasy world with no real impact. And he loves the food system in America that pumps gross amounts of estrogen into our bodies to placate our masculine drive for dominion and virtue. American novelist Norman Mailer once said, Masculinity is not something given to you. It is something that you gain. And you gain it by winning, hear this, small battles with honor. Because there is very little honor left in American society, he goes on to say, there is a certain built-in tendency to destroy masculinity in men. This is the toxic masculinity stuff that everybody talks about. They have no objection to God's standard for masculinity when our men, when the men of God win small battles with honor. When we stand for Christ and we fight and we don't win the war all at once, but every day we're plotting away. I win this fight and I win this fight and I win this fight and I do it for Christ with honor. Brothers, have you given up on winning these small battles? Why? Have you lost faith that you could never win the war so there's no point in trying? Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faithfulness on the earth? Now, if we look at Ezra chapter 1 verse 5, I think those men could raise their hands and say, he will in me. My heart was stirred when Cyrus read that decree. I'm going to build. How would you answer it, brothers? What little thing do you need to be faithful in right now to take the next step in building a house for God's name? For some of you, maybe it's memorizing scripture. Maybe it's do something with your family in the evenings instead of sitting around watching sports. Maybe it's begin a regular fast. Maybe it's meet with John and Wendell for evangelism once a week. What is that thing that God is saying Here's a small fight. Would you just show up? It's time to do it. It's time to honor God. It's time to stand and fight. Is God stirring your heart? Now he calls not just these patriarch men, but also he calls the priests and the Levites. This would be the ministerial class in Israel. These are the officers. That would be the priests. And then the tribe, the Levites, that alone were permitted to serve the Lord in the function of holy duties of worship and sacrifice. The rebuilding and the reinstating of worship in Jerusalem necessitated these men coming along. Brethren, God has and will continue to raise up ministers for the work of building His kingdom here at Christ the King. We said thanks for that this morning in the opening announcements. Your elders know that not everyone is called to shepherd and not everyone is called to preach. Think about this. In the Old Testament, you had to be born a Levite. And to serve as priest, you had to be born into the high priestly family. So basically, the hand of providence runs through all of it. But though we know that not all men will serve, your elders desire that all men be qualified to serve. Are you preparing yourself to be ready 
if you are called to be a vessel for honorable use. Do you have your house in order? You might remember foolish Eli, who was the high priest, and yet his sons were uncontrollable, which led to their deaths and his downfall. Are you the one concealing secret sin that no one knows about? A priest could not go into the house of God in this way. He had to be set apart and purified for his most holy work. Some of you here may desire to lead a church, but you're fearful that God might ask you not to lead this church, but to plant a church. You're fearful of leaving. You can't imagine another church like this one. How could God let something like this happen twice? As was mentioned this morning, all the glory and praise for what's happening at Christ the King is due to the Almighty. And He can reproduce it 10,000 times over. In fact, if what we believe about the gospel is true, He will reproduce it 10,000 times over. The Bible tells us that God gives us, brothers, the grace for today, not the grace for tomorrow. Enjoy the grace for today. If you've learned anything from Ezra at this point, God is going to have His way. Your job is to be faithful and ready whenever He calls your name and for whatever purpose. Now lastly, you see there in verse 5 that he mentions everyone else. Yes, the men, the patriarchs had an important role to play. So did the Levites. But then there was everyone else. This would be men who were not the heads of their father's houses. The wives and the mothers, the young people and the children. They all had work to do in building the kingdom. There is not one useless person in this building project of the Jesus kingdom that we're endeavoring. Sisters, let me speak to you for just a moment. I try intentionally to avoid the woman worship that many preachers engage in today. They fawn over women like they're goddesses or something. But don't hear my dialed back rhetoric as a tacit devaluation. The women in Ezra's day, and certainly in our day, have crucial roles to play. As the, uh, the tabernacle was being constructed in the days of Moses, it was the woman, the women, excuse me, who spun the curtains of the tabernacle. In Exodus 35, every skillful woman spun with her hands, and they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill spun the goat's hair, again, from Exodus 35. Now, have you considered for just a moment that women were the ones who made the walls for the tabernacle of God? The very curtains embroidered with beauty that faced both God and man during the wilderness years were made by the daughters of Israel. Now, you want to talk about some biblical theology our wives today still build the temple of God. You knit me together in my mother's womb, David says in Psalm 139. By the way, this is another reason why God hates and Satan loves abortion. Because it destroys the temple of God. Our women beautify our homes. They make delicious our feast days. They administrate the schooling of our children. They nurture the general health of the house. And they worship our Creator with us as co-heirs of the grace of life. The effort to reorder God's house according to His patriarchal desire in no way diminishes the value of our sisters. It is the fertile soil that brings it into full flower. Luther once said, A poor woman knitting a pair of stockings in a way of faith does a greater work than Alexander did when he conquered the world. Spurgeon once said, Women are as much serving God in looking after their own children, training them up in God's fear, minding the house and making their households a church for God, as they would be if they had been called to lead an army to battle for the Lord of hosts. Brothers, when's the last time that you told your wife 
how crucial she is to your family? When's the last time you thanked her for the accounting work she does or the decorating or the schooling or any number of other things? Everyone, everyone is going to pitch in on this kingdom building project for King Jesus. Now, let's look at the second part of verse five. How did God motivate them? What did he do to get their attention? It says that God stirred them up to go and rebuild the house of Yahweh, which is in Jerusalem. Here is the crux of the issue. Here is the essence of what we need to see in the message this morning. When God is ready to build, he moves in people's hearts. Everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go to Jerusalem. This word stirred comes from a Hebrew word meaning to rouse, incite, excite, or even to awaken. It is the same word used in verse 1 where the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. The folks that were going to have an outsized impact on this second temple rebuilding process were the ones whose hearts God had stirred up. Notice, the Bible says that God was the motivating agent in these people's lives. You might say, but wait, Chris, Cyrus released the Jews for political reasons. You said that last week. And... I'm at Christ the King because Dustin Haddock cornered me and asked me some hard questions that I couldn't answer. And he gave me the stank eye. But beloved, God uses means. In the 2000 film, The Patriot, Mel Gibson plays the role of a former American Indian war hero, Benjamin Martin, now living in colonial South Carolina, and who, during the tumultuous year of 1776, attempts to live a peaceful life making rocking chairs as a widower on his farm with his three sons. Though the war for independence comes literally into his front yard, he tries to stay out of the fight. But his sons have different thoughts. They want nothing more than to get involved and push back the tyrants. This inevitably leads to family trouble, capture, and loss. The result is that Martin's heart cannot remain neutral. The war was the means that stirred him up. He has to fight. Though this is a historical fiction, if you've seen the movie, you know that Benjamin's decision to get in the war helps to change the outcome of the war and also shape the future of millions. Can I ask you a question, church? Why are you here? You are here because God moved you. He stirred you up. He was the motivating factor. Though a number of means, and the elders have talked to New Covenant members about why God brought them here, and what their stories are, their church backgrounds, a number of different things. If you've covenanted with us, we know that God Almighty in his sovereign providential power, has moved you here. Did you come to be a part of the community of Christ the King in order to be devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, to serve Christ and fulfill the Great Commission? Or, and this is to the point that motives matter, did you come out of bitterness towards your last church experience? Or because your friends are here? Or because there are potential mates for your kids? Or you want to be a pastor here? Or because you want to be a part of a family integrated church? Or a church that does regular evangelism? Or a church that has an abortion ministry arm? Or because we teach reformed theology? Or because we want any or all of these things and you'd like them to fit into your available time slot? Motives matter, beloved. If we want God's help and favor to continue at Christ the King, it is our duty to order our motives rightly before God. He may have moved you, but you may need to repent of some of the reasons why you moved. He isn't interested in building your or my idea 
of the new Christendom. Now you may ask, Chris, I want my heart to be stirred by God to build rightly. But I honestly don't know how. I want to bear fruit for his kingdom. I want to serve Christ. I want to give to my family and to create a legacy. I want my life to count for something. I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Let me say first that it's a good desire, but we need to recognize that God's stirring in our hearts often comes after exile. You think about that? 50 plus years, these heads of father's houses, these Levites, everyone else, 50 plus years, they'd been in exile. When did God prompt them for the work? It was after a long period of darkness. Many of you are ready to join in the building, but in God's providence, you're still working your way through the valley of shadow. Be encouraged by this, brothers and sisters. We recently heard Peter's advice for pilgrims in the dark places. What does he say in 1 Peter chapter 5? Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that, what? He may exalt you in due time. Now, what road is this? What path is God asking us to walk? He's asking us to walk the Christ road. This is the same path that Jesus had to take. Humility, faithfulness, exaltation. This is the one path that Christians consistently try to avoid. If you've got children in here, you've probably seen them play the don't fall in the lava game, right? All of a sudden, kids in a living room say, the ground is lava. And then everybody has to jump for high ground. And then they jump around the furniture and try not to you know, fall in the lava. It's a fun child's game. Seems a little bit silly for Christians who have matured and grown in Christ to continue to try and play. If God's brought you into the deep places, beloved, is it our place to say, I need to avoid these trials? Is it our place to say, I need to deaden the pain? Is it our place to say, I'd love to find the nearest exit? When God brings us into exile or shadow or trial, I would encourage you, don't run from it. Listen to a pagan. I want you to hear a Roman Stoic philosopher. Common grace. This is from Seneca. He said, Calamity is virtue's opportunity. There is no one more unfortunate than the man who has never been unfortunate. For it has never been in his power to try himself. We just recently went through the story of Job this last week in our Bible reading. What's God doing? He's getting glory. He's trying his man. He's proving virtue. How is it that a pagan God-hater like Seneca knows more about what God is up to than most Christians today. Beloved, if God has sent you into what Eric Kahn calls the descent into darkness, rest assured he is up to something good. He's making what Paul calls vessels for honorable use. God will bring you out of the dark season. Don't rush it. So... Chris, what do I do in the meantime? First, I would encourage you to see if you need to repent. If you're convicted that you have been trying to wiggle out of the valley season or hurry on so you can build what you think is Christ's kingdom when in reality it's just the kingdom that you'd like to be Christ, but it's kind of your idea, confess to Christ explicitly what you've been doing. Tell him Word for word, this is my plan, this is what I've been up to. I'm laying it out before you, I've had this ruse going for a while. I'm sorry, I hate this, I'm repenting of it. And then, secondly, it might be appropriate to mourn. I know this may sound strange, but a strong case can be made from both the Old Testament and the New Testament that mourning is something good. 
This will look like times of solitude, prayer, and seeking God. Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will find comfort. More on this in a minute. Thirdly, and most importantly, if you've looked at repenting and you've mourned your sin, I would encourage you to abide in Christ. For those of you who are new to CTK, one of my main goals as a pastor is to convince the sheep that the central task of the entire Christian life is found in John chapter 15. Here we see Christ represented as a vine and his church represented as the branches. Jesus gives this parable talking about the interplay between the vine and the branches and the life that flows only from the vine to the branches to tell us the most important thing he can tell us about the Christian life. When we are connected to Christ in what I've called desperate dependence on his power and grace, we can't help but bear much fruit. But when we endeavor to live on our own, apart from the master who bought us, we are unable to do anything. And I want to encourage you not to amen that and say that you believe it if you don't actually have a daily pursuit of Christ. If you don't fall out of bed on your knees in need of Christ, if the things of Christ grow strangely dim in the light of earth's glories and trifles, those things are unordered. It's reversed. We need to be desperately dependent on our Savior. This is how we abide. What does that even mean? Did you know that I have the ability, Chris, in myself, I have the ability to overpower almost any man in this room. I do. It just depends on the setting. Squared off against most of our men in a martial arts gym, no, I don't have a chance. But if I were drowning in a lake and three of the strongest men in our church tried to swim in and save me, I could drown every one of them. Why? It's because I'm desperate. Where does the strength come from? Where does the earnestness come from? It comes from desperation. And beloved, this is what's so good about not avoiding the dark years. Why is God taking you through the valley of shadow? It's because he wants you to be starved of the pleasantries of life so that you can pursue and seek him. Proverbs 27, 7. I've told you all it's my favorite proverb. A person who is full, the Christian Standard Bible says, tramples on a honeycomb, walks right by it. Delicious, yummy. Every child in this room, pick it up, eat it. No, a person who is full, not even going to waste my time. But to a hungry person, any bitter thing is sweet. What can you do during your season of waiting? Pursue Jesus Christ. Fast, get on your knees and pray. You cannot tell me you believe this if you are unwilling even one time a day to seek the Lord. So begin seeking Him now. Today is the day. Begin pursuing Christ. Repent of all the times that you've missed Him and don't miss Him. Don't miss Him anymore. Well, let's conclude with, in verses 6 through 11, what Ezra records is a series of gifts given to the people whose hearts God had stirred up to aid them in the rebuilding process. I'm going to summarize each of these verses instead of reading them over again. In verse 6, you see that the Gentile neighbors, the people of God, gave them all sorts of vessels and animals. In verse 7, Cyrus returned to them all the treasures taken from the house of God at the beginning of their exile. In verse 8, these had to pass through the official hands of a man named Mithradath. Mithras is the Persian sun god, and Mithradath means 
Mithras has given. He's a man uh, who gives these into another man of elusive identity, Sheshbazzar, the prince of Judah. The Hebrew word for prince here carries no ancestral connections, so he's not likely tied to Persia. It's likely that he was just the first governor of Judea under the Persians before Zerubbabel, and we'll talk about him later in the story. Then we have a somewhat detailed list of items that were returned, namely bowls and vessels. And by the way, if you add up the numbers from verses 9 to 10, they don't equal 5,400 by a long shot. 2,499 by my count. There are a number of reasons suggested for why this may be the case, and this is where Old Testament scholars love to say, see, the Bible is corrupted. They didn't even get their math right. The explanation that I prefer is that the most significant items of the inventory are the ones that are listed, and there are others that are not included. For example, later on in Ezra, we're going to talk about how knives come with this allotment of things that returned. But all of this, verses 6 through 11, is in order to show us what I mentioned last week, that God keeps his promises. Here's one from Jeremiah. Jeremiah 27, verses 21 and 22. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning the vessels that are left in the house of the Lord, in the house of the king of Judah and in Jerusalem, they shall be carried to Babylon and remain there until the day when I visit them, declares the Lord. Then I will bring them back and restore them to this place. A question that we might be tempted to ask, in our trying times, in our place here in Anderson County, and a question that this passage so absolutely and conclusively answers, is God able to provide a place for us in Clinton, Tennessee, He's chosen people for Christ the King. He stirred us up. What now? Let me ask you this. What are the odds that after 50 plus years of the Jews being in exile, having their place of worship destroyed, their goods and lands taken, and after countless trials and afflictions, burials, businesses started, money lost, that an edict from the king who's over the entire known world, would come down and restore to them all of the temple artifacts and worship implements, and then some. That the people around them would give up their gold and valuables and preciouses for the rebuilding of God's house. That not only the reprobate would be plundered, but the houses of their gods would be robbed of everything that rightly belonged to Yahweh himself. Is God able to bring us into the land? What if I said no? Is God able? It's not the right way to ask that question. I tell you, he is more than able. He is willing and beloved, as you've heard already several times this morning. He's doing it. How else can we explain the number of people that he's brought to our fellowship? How else can we explain the homes that became available and purchased at just the right times? How else can we explain the countless answers to our prayers or the supernatural fellowship in unity or the number of baptisms over the last year or the strengthening of our men and the softening of our women? How else can you explain the connection to the county commission at just the time when they were preparing the resolution to abolish all abortion in Anderson County. Jesus said that he would build his church. And all that we have seen up to now is God fulfilling that promise to us through the riches won by Christ. Is that hard to believe? It might be. Can you imagine these people that have been in exile for 50 years and then they hand them all this gold and Silver and here, go build a house. Uh, It's a pretty big turn. God, are we going to be able to do this? 
I mean, you've given us these blessings, but now I'm struggling with a different kind of doubt. This ought to drive us, beloved, to prayer. If God could give the Jews back so much to build him a house, what will he withhold from us who are in Christ Jesus? If he has done this much so far, why do we fear to pray for a building? Why do we fear to go out and look for one? Why do we fear to make phone calls and ask? As though he won't answer? Well, he might answer somebody else at this church, but not me. I'm, I'm a bit of a worm. I, God doesn't... I, he, when, when he answers prayers, he answers other people's prayers. I can't remember a time when he's answered mine. Are we concerned about what other people will think of us if we pray a prayer and it's not answered? Are we fearing men instead of God? I also want to ask you this. Are you expecting God to be generous to you while at the same time you're withholding from him? One of the topics I committed to God to never be afraid to talk about in front of his people is the topic of giving. I know that there are churches that do this wrongly, the health, wealth, and prosperity folks. You know, you give so much, you'll get so much back. It's this math equation thing. They take it too far. And there are other churches who, in an effort to overcorrect, they never talk about it at all. Here's the issue, beloved. What does the Bible say? How can we expect God to give freely to us when we are withholding from Him? Is there sin in our camp right now? Has God been asking you to give to His rebuilding project for some time now, and yet you still refuse? Repent. Start giving even a small amount. $10, $20 a week. I know that sounds gimmicky, but we're called to shepherd you. You've got to start somewhere. Be faithful to God. Be obedient to Him. Give to Him. Give for the purpose of the building of His kingdom. If you want the details of where our church finances go, including salaries, you can ask Chad Rosenberger. He'd be happy to tell you. The real issue here is biblical submission. Biblical submission to the call of God on all of our lives that God delights in a cheerful giver. In Malachi chapter 3, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and put me to the test now in this, says the Lord of armies, if I do not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. We're comfortable with the promises of God about our ability in Christ to rebuild and expand the kingdom of God. But then we get to these passages that we've heard taught so wrongly and we're unwilling to grasp the truth that is there. That God says, give, bring it in. I'm able to give back. These promises are just for, as just as much for us today as they were 2,500 years ago. I'll conclude with this. Earlier in the sermon, I mentioned the movie The Patriot. At one point in the film, Gabriel Martin, played by Heath Ledger, Benjamin's oldest son, says this. They call this the new world. It's not. It's the same as the old. But we have a chance to build a new world. A world where all men are created equal under God. Now that may sound quaint, but I ask you to consider you likely pray something very similar to that every single day. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth, same way it is in heaven. Our part in this task begins here in Anderson County and likely somewhere in Asia too. I'm amazed at who God has brought our way. I still can't believe one year to the day almost that this many people have covenanted with us for the work of building Christ's kingdom here in the Clinton area. 
I'm amazed at the stories of how God stirred up each of your hearts. How you heard about Christ the King or secured that mortgage on that home or your hopes for future work and business in this area. At least once a day, Tammy and I will remark about some marvel of God. How he's blessed this church or answered his people's prayers. It's really incredible, beloved. You've all said it. I've just never seen anything like this. All glory to God, and remember, the work is still largely ahead of us. Yes, the gold and the vessels and everything are being put into our laps, but it's for the purpose of building His kingdom. We may see great changes in our days, as we prayed for, and hopefully generations from now as well. But Jesus has promised to build His church. So, burn the ships, put your hand to the plow, Have faith in Christ, and let's not look back. Will you pray with me? Father, we do thank you for the promises that you revealed to us in your word. I thank you for, most of all, the precious promise that Christ is abundantly fruitful, and in him we are guaranteed to bear fruit and much of it. Lord, if nothing else today, would you convict and bring your people's hearts, mine and theirs, to a place of deeper desperation on the Lord Jesus Christ. A need for him, a pursuit of him, a longing for times spent meditating on his word and thinking of him and his gift of sacrifice, and his glorious resurrection, and one day his coming. Would you help us as we lay our hands to the plow, so to speak, here in Anderson County, to build with courage and faith and not look back, and establish the work of our hands, Lord. Yes, establish the work of our hands. In Jesus' name, amen.